This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Well, thanks for tuning in. I'm reading from Romans chapter 16, Romans 16 and verse 17. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Satan cannot overtly destroy the church of Christ. He's tried, but as Jesus said in Matthew 16, the gates of hell would not prevail against his kingdom. Those living under his rule, Scripture teaches, are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And nothing can separate us from his love. And that includes the the power of, of Satan. As Paul describes in Romans chapter 8, the end of that passage. But one thing the Bible is clear about in passages like Romans 16 that I just read and, and others is that we can sabotage ourselves and we can divide from within and be deceived and in the end share the same destination as Satan himself. And so Paul makes this appeal to watch out for these false teachings and individuals who wield them that cause divisions and are destructive forces within within the church. We know that there's nothing new under the sun and this was a problem in the first century and it continues it continues to be various false teachings may be presented to each new generation of Christians uh, but those teachings are ultimately new and and the mind and I think significantly the mindsets and the attitudes that produce false teaching have always been the same And what we find in Scripture is just what we see playing out now is that God's plan to save man is just too exclusive for some folks. And so they make repeated efforts to blur the line between truth and error. Right? These divisions that Paul speaks of in Romans 16 were created because they were contrary to the doctrine that they had been taught. And so Paul says, avoid such individuals who try to introduce these things and who try to carry you away with their teaching. And so God's plan, the truth, by its very nature, is exclusive, right? Just as a, a bullseye is exclusive on a target, right? By definition, it is the bullseye, and by definition, everything else is not the bullseye. And so when we try to reframe that reality, you know, in spirit in the spiritual realm, what we're effectively telling God is that we we know better. Right? And that makes us idolaters, that makes us selfish. And that's why Paul says in verse 18, these people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And they may 
speak very eloquently, as he says here, smooth talk, flattery to deceive the hearts of naive. They may be very convincing in their their speech, and they might even be very sincere. But ultimately, it, it doesn't matter. It's nothing less because it's nothing less than an attempt to reframe and redefine God's grace. It's, it's trying to set new boundaries or remove boundaries that he's put in place that separate his people from the rest of the world or his people from even other, other religious people. And so one of the ways in which Satan... I think is so effective in sabotaging Christians and local churches is by using eloquent, intelligent people, charismatic people to build a following ultimately, I think for, for themselves, um, even though that may not be their intention, but that's the reality uh, because of what Paul says and because of the biblical principle that there is no alternative, right? There is God's way, and then all other alternatives, which are not acceptable, are, are human in origin. So they are successful, I think, in inducing Christians to abandon the faith uh, because so many Christians are unstable in their, their faith. And that's what Paul says here, is that they're, they're naive, the idea of being a simple or, or untaught. He says they seduce or they... Uh, what's the word the ESV uses? Uh, deceive the hearts of the naive. Uh, and so one of their tactics is by design to focus on areas of agreement. There's lots of religious people in the world uh, who may not even be members of the same religion, um, but nevertheless they agree on certain principles, right? Kindness and generosity and so on and so forth. And and so the angle will be to ignore the differences that are stipulated in Scripture. You know, one way they put it is let's just focus on the things that we agree on, you know, not major on the minors and things like this. So their preaching and teaching becomes in inclusive and urges the acceptance of those who are outside the practice of truth in regard to other Scriptures. And so, again, this is trying to rearrange boundaries that God has set, which he intended to, to be markers that divide his, his people from the rest of the world, right? The people of God are called out of darkness into light. And they're also that, that includes not just what we might think of as we, we would refer to as the world or, or worldly values or secular values, but even other religious Values, right? Because there's no there's no moral equivalence according to Scripture between all religions, right? There is the way, the truth, and the life in Christ, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, right? And then there's everything else, and we're expected to maintain that separation, not and not just maintain it, but em embrace it, not apologize for it. That following Christ by definition means I reject all other human authorities and human human ways and saying you're sorry for doing that or for standing for the truth of the gospel is tantamount to apologizing for God and God doesn't owe anyone an apology so we shouldn't be trying to give one on his behalf 
or trying to make nice with um, people whom God says are uh, our enemies or pretending that we have fellowship with them. Now that doesn't mean that we're hateful, right? We're to love our enemies, but we can't be under any kind of illusions that we're spiritually on the same plane or on the same on the same level. No, there's there are the people of light, and then there are those who are living in, in darkness. And the Bible clearly teaches us we can't be participants in sin. And sin manifests itself in different ways, not just in deception and jealousy and murder and anger and, and things where even many worldly non-religious people would say, yeah, that's that's evil. But again, sin is anything that would be unauthorized by God. And that includes religious practices and worship and teachings that are not authorized by him. And I think that that's where we get confused and where many of these these false teachers kind of make make their hay, right? As they will try to make this distinction between, well, you know, there's the, you know, there's the really bad worldly sins, but you know, we shouldn't really lump religious error into that that same category because, you know, at least the at least the religious people are trying. Well, now we're now we're falling back on the human judgment and estimation. Let's just read what scripture says and then compare everything to that, whether we're talking about a religious practice or not, is is said belief, practice, attitude, is it authorized by Christ? And if it isn't, then let's be separate from it. Let's not have anything to do with them because that would be sin. And so we, we shouldn't be sorry for that. We should be sorry for the times that we don't want to endure the hostility of the, of the world or of other professing believers who say they follow Christ um, but do not abide in his teaching because we don't want to be called you know bigoted or narrow-minded or anti or some other name but truth again by definition is exclusive and so we should be sorry for the times we folded up and compromised it because we didn't want to be insulted for bearing the name of Christ which and scripture is a badge of honor in 1 Peter 4, 14. Right? If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And so when we fail to speak and live and uphold the truth, we should apologize first to God and then repent of that sin and then strive to do better. And we have to make a distinction between the word of God and the words of, of men. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Second Peter one and verse three. And he's, he's called us to adhere to his standards. And so trying to do exactly what God said needs to be done is not legalistic. It's not, you know, zealotry or fanaticism. It is simply the trying to abide by the standard which he's called us to abide in. And those who would argue for an inclusive fellowship do so usually on the grounds that Scripture is not clear enough, maybe regarding doctrinal and practical issues, and that people who err regarding those things, you know, we should still have fellowship with. 
until they realize that they're unscriptural, you know, or something along these these lines. But again, to contend that scripture isn't clear or to say that, you know, it's impossible for men to come to a common understanding of God's word is to argue God's part isn't perfectly done, right? So we hear folks make these statements and then, you know, we, you know, there's no scriptural grounds for them. But I think few are willing to accept the implication of what they're saying, right? If they're going to say, well, because scripture is not clear on this point or because, you know, there's, it's because people are imperfect and we just can't come to a common understanding of God's word. Well, we're, the implication of that is that, well, God swung and missed, right? Because what God is saying in his word is that it is, it is adequate in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It, it can make you complete for every good work and that men can come to a common understanding. First Corinthians chapter one, be of the same mind, be of the same judgment, right? Philippians chapter one, stand shoulder to shoulder with the gospel for the gospel. And so to say that less than that is acceptable to God is to reject the completeness of God's word. It's to indict God. God wants men to be united and says they can be united. And so to deny that is to deny him. God wants men to be united under the banner of Christ and to follow him. And apparently he desires that far more than we want to be united or believe that we can be. You know, do we not have faith in God's desire and plan? You know, the issue is not with his message or his will or it doesn't rest with him it is it is with us and the fact that the bible may not be clear to me lays the cause of that lack of clarity at my feet not not god's you know my my response to his word is not measured by my personal understanding of it but it's measured by what it actually teaches and I think that this is something that many Christians have been duped into duped into believing. When Paul is preaching to the people of um, Berea, remember their example. It says in Acts 17, verses 10 and 11, that the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and they arrived and went into the Jewish synagogue, and these Jews who are more noble than those in Thessalonica, received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Right. So they were evaluating Paul's teaching based on what the scripture, at least that they had actually said, which would have been the Old Testament. Okay, so they, they understood this principle in the Holy Spirit says that they were noble-minded. The, again, the principle being that, okay, I have, I have a belief and I'm listening to this man who says now something different has come and is in, in place and he's using the very authority which I believe in. Let me check what it says and compare it against that, right? And so, in other words, their confidence was not <clears throat> in themselves, and in, and in their previous understanding of things, but it was in the very word that they were so eager to examine, 
Right. Let's go back, reevaluate, and see if what he is saying is actually there. And they and they come to faith, right? It, because it was because their their agenda was the truth, right? Not you know not being pleasing to people or maintaining a you know a human unity, but ultimately, am I pleasing to? To God, am I submitting to His authority? Is this, is this the reality? And the only way I can determine that is by considering what He said. And so, the fact that some of us also may not be clear on all issues that doesn't remove my responsibility because all people have a truncated knowledge of the Word. There's gaps in all of our knowledge, but that fact and and the and and also that that leads me to be unclear on some some things that doesn't remove my responsibility to take appropriate action uh, when I do understand what it's teaching right so let me give you an example that's a a big wordy description but an example of what I'm describing is Apollos in Acts chapter 18 verses 24 and 25 so Apollos is attested in the scripture by the Holy Spirit as being an eloquent man, as being a man who is knowledgeable, who is mighty in in the word. And he's preaching to people. But Apollos' knowledge is truncated. Remember, it says, Luke says that he knew only the baptism of John. And so Christians who are informed hear him. That's Priscilla and Aquila. And after listening to him, it says that they they take him aside and they teach him the way of the truth more accurately. Okay, so Apollos is, Apollos is now at a crossroads, right? But he learns the truth about the baptism of Christ and what he should be preaching to people. And he acted when he learned the truth. That's the point. Not to use Apollos as an example to excuse ignorance and just say, well, Apollos didn't know. And, and so the Holy Spirit says all these nice things about him, so he must have been okay. That's not the point of the passage, right? That's not the reason the record's there. The record is there because it shows he was, he was an error, sincere though as he may have been, but he acted to correct it when he learned the truth. When confronted with the truth, he took appropriate action. And he wouldn't have done that if he was resting on his, if he, if if the philosophies of, of the men we're considering are are true, right? He would have just told Priscilla and Aquila, "Stop majoring on the minors. Just let me, just let me teach." All right, we're all Christians here, you know. And, and using these sorts of you know excuses and and terminology that we hear so much of today, he didn't. He humbled himself before the word, but because like the Bereans, his agenda was to learn and to obey the truth, regardless of which vessel it was coming to him, whether it be Priscilla Quill or somebody else. They all had the same desire, and that is to be pleasing to God. You know, Peter writes of those who are willingly ignorant of God's power and judgment in Second Peter 3 and verse 5. And so he, in writing to Christians, exhorts them to not be ignorant in verse 8. And his point is because though God is long-suffering, we all have to stand before his throne. God is long-suffering and patient, but judgment is still coming 
And if there's a judgment, there's a standard by which we're going to be judged. And so he's saying, beware of being ignorant of that standard. And again, he's speaking to Christians. Don't make the same mistake as much of the world. Because the indifferent person, and even sometimes the indifferent religious person, attempts to shelter themselves in the cave of their ignorance, thinking, well, I'm secure here so long as I refuse to come out. Right. So long as I remain ignorant, I have that, I have that out, right? I I uh, I just said, well, I didn't know. You know, I, no, no one ever no one ever told me. Well, it just doesn't work that way. And we know this intuitively. But when it comes to spiritual things, it seems like we we want to change the rules, right? We we may be unaware of what the speed limit is, but if we break it, we're going to get pulled over and we're going to be cited. We can't say, oh, I'm sorry, I just didn't know. I'm, I'm not from around here. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't change what, what the law says, right? Or to use a, a scriptural illustration, I think that's more familiar in the word is that that of sowing barley and wheat, right? You can believe with all your heart that you're sowing wheat and be ignorant of the fact that you're actually sowing barley. But when the harvest comes, you know, is your, is your ignorance going to change your barley into wheat? No, what you're, when the harvest comes, you're going to harvest whatever you sowed. You may have thought it was wheat all along, but in reality it was barley and that's what you're going to reap. And so, Again, we I think we understand, I think any honest person understands that principle, but when it comes to the authority of God's word, we we try to come up with all these excuses and make exceptions. When every example that we have is not to excuse error or to plead ignorance, or and certainly not to remain willfully ignorant, but it's those gaps in our knowledge should propel us to evaluate and to and to seek and to search out the the truth and to and to teach those who believe wrongly when we see what they're teaching is not aligned with the truth that's what Priscilla and Aquila did right when they saw Paulus they you know didn't they didn't berate him publicly they didn't you know, try to make an example out of him or glorify themselves, but out of love and concern, they take him aside. It says, and they and they teach him. And so we're we're clearly taught with how to deal with those in in error. We began with Romans sixteen seventeen, where Paul says, "Avoid them," and that's that's kind of the back end of the protocol, right? Because you know we're. We have other passages that certainly inform our our judgment and decision, right? Paul says, "Be patient with uh, those who who are in opposition and try to teach them in hopes that God may grant them repentance." Uh, that's Second Timothy two verses twenty four and twenty five. If memory serves, uh, let me go there for a moment just to confirm that. Uh, let's see here. 
So that is verse 24. Verse 23, Paul warns him in 2 Timothy 2, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, you know, it's not that, you know, there's no compassion for those who are in or we just write them off and turn our noses up. No, you make efforts to teach those who are in error, <clears throat> but it comes to a point, obviously, in Romans 16, wherein if they're staying entrenched in that, and and certainly now, as Paul says, they're trying to cause divisions with contrary teachings, they must be avoided. Uh, and there's other passages that leads to another discussion, I guess, about uh, protocol and specifically the responsibilities of a local church and how that plays out in dealing with wayward members or false teachers. Uh, but our emphasis today is just acknowledging the reality that there is false teachers and not being under any illusions that <clears throat> we can blur the lines of fellowship or, or try to rearrange the boundaries that God has set. When over and over he's calling for us to be watchful and repeatedly warning us of the dangers of, of these individuals. Uh, so, you know, in, in closing here, yeah, as we think about our responsibility to the Lord, to follow him with all our heart and, to hear his exhortations, to be united upon truth and to seek truth. When we read his his plan for us, you know, to, to be united again in, in Christ and to be all of one mind, he presented to us also the basis for that unity. And that is his word, right? If all men believe the truth and practice only the truth, then unity will prevail. All will be of one heart and one soul, as at the beginning in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. <clears throat> and the reason that they were, I believe you see in the text, it says of those Christians that they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. And they were continuing daily with one another, with one mind in the temple. And so they understood that the teaching that was the inspired teaching that was coming to them from God's chosen men, that that teaching was the basis for their unity. And that's the and the same is true as you read the letters that Paul writes to various churches in the New Testament, right? That Paul's plea to be of one mind to the Corinthians in First Corinthians one one ten. Again, it wasn't it wasn't empty and it wasn't an impossible plea, but he was calling them to be united under Christ, right? Paul wasn't crucified for you. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul, he says, but it is Christ who died for you. And so, return to his teaching. And he will say to that same church, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. Now, 
understanding this and saying all this doesn't suddenly change the fact that there's going to be multitudes of people who refuse the Bible as God's law, even the very folks who claim to follow it. Um, all we can do is plead with them and warn them. But that's the extent of our responsibility to them. We can't we can't coerce someone into obeying the truth. Um, that's not the way God operates. He didn't He didn't do that with the Christians who follow Him today. Um, but we should demonstrate compassion and patience, as Paul says in Second Timothy two, verses twenty four and twenty five, in in the hopes that they will repent and be united with the rest of God's people. Unity between believers and and unbelievers is impossible. And though Christ came to unite men, he also frames his mission in terms of dividing men. As if you remember in Matthew 10 and verse 34, Christ came to divide the obedient from the rebellious. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. For a man's enemies will be members of his own household, and father will turn against son, and mother against daughter, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And so while it's true that there's peace in, in Christ, it can only be had on his terms. There's unity in Christ, but it's only on his terms and on his truth. And when we refuse to submit to those terms, well, then division is a result because it has to be, because there's no alternative. And that kind of division is of the Lord who expects his saints to be separate from the world. Love for truth must come before love for peace with men. And a man who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and that's his goal in life, and that's his purpose, that man is going to find himself alienated from a lot of his friends, from those who he once called friend. And he may find himself saying along with Paul in 2 Timothy 4 that no man stood with me. No man stood with me, but all forsook me, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me. We hope that it never comes to that, but that is that is the reality. And also, that was sufficient for Paul, as he goes on to say, in anticipation of his reward, in fighting the good fight of the faith and finishing the race, because he stood with the Lord, regardless of the abandonment of his friends, he could have a crown that he anticipated to receive from, from the Lord Jesus. And, and I think for most of us, you know, Paul's situation in 2 Timothy 4, I think it's fair to say for most of us that won't be our reality and for most of us, the reality is, is that we have discovered a common bond with other truth seekers 
And that love for God and truth has drawn us together just as it did the Bereans, just as it did Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, just as it did Paul and Barnabas, and so many other examples we can read about in, in Scripture. And yes, again, there's going to be those gaps in our knowledge, and there's going to be differences in understanding, but patience in those things and respect for one another and love for one another and opening our Bibles together is going to produce unity because it's a promise from God that it will. And we see it playing out in Scripture if we just follow their example. Thanks for tuning in.